Hello and welcome to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David Johnson, the skeptic, and I'm joined by... I'm Dale, the Christian or seeker. Or the guy who is perpetually wrong about everything. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I know he wants to rebut, but I've, I've muted his mic. Here's, here's what we're doing. Uh, we're going to jump right into today's show because uh, time constraints on me... Uh, and apologies for that. And so we're going to get right into the topic. Uh, we're, we did receive uh, comments. I will catch up on comment shows. I promise. I'll just keep promising until it comes true. Uh, and we're going to get uh, right into hard passages. Uh, and so let's do it. Uh, I, If you have not read the articles, I strongly recommend uh, that you read uh, the blog it is at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. And the reason I in, encourage you to do that, even though you're listening to a podcast, is because the podcast is not merely a, recapitula a recapitulation of what we write in the blog. Uh, so we write a thing, and we look at that thing, and we think about it, and then we talk about it at a different level. And so oftentimes we talk about things... Uh, that are not in the blog post, and we sometimes never mention the things that we wrote about in the blog, but they do go hand in hand. So I do encourage you to read that. Uh, you can also do like many have been doing. You can write us at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. That's skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Hard passages. So the first point I want to make about hard passages is I think that this is a just the term hard passages is a bit of uh, Christian marketing speak. Christians call them hard passages, and I think that we should call them on that. These are not hard passages. The things that Christians call hard passages are actually easy passages. They're some of the easiest passages to understand. They're atrocious passages, and we shouldn't let them get away with calling them hard passages and not calling them what they are. They're terrible, awful, atrocious passages. The only reason that they're hard from the Christian's point of view is that they're trying to defend an atrocious thing. So on a matter like slavery, the Bible is very clear about slavery. You, you treat your Hebrew slaves uh, as employees and you treat the slaves from the other nations as actual slaves that you can own uh, for life and then pass down to your children. It's, it, it's, it's, it's an easy passage. It's just atrocious. It's hard for the Christian because they have to defend it. And so I, I want to rebrand this right off the bat. These are not hard passages. These are just atrocious passages, and Christians really don't want to think of them that way. Um, so there are some problems uh, when one defends these types of passages. Just the fact that these passages are in the Bible provides uh, problems for Christians. These are, these are not theoretical problems. These are problems that I had with these passages as a Christian. Uh, and so when I talk about this, this is not just some counter-apologetic for me. This is, this is the life that I led. Uh, so let me just go through uh, some of the problems uh, with these passages. First of all, uh, the Bible is... Uh, is, is not the master of any verifiable domain. 
So when you when you look at some of the things that the Bible says, and it touches on things like history, and you think, ah, well, that's not very good history. It touches on things like science, uh, such as the Genesis story. That's not good science. Uh, in in other uh, other disciplines, you know, maybe it says some good things here and there, some true things here and there. But it's not really a book that you would turn to as the master of any domain. You would not use the Bible in a in a in a classroom setting as a history book. It's a bad history book. You wouldn't use it as a science book. It's a bad science book. It's the master of no particular domain. And the fact that these uh, difficult for Christian passages exist uh, kind of makes the Bible even less of a master of any verifiable domain. Uh, Number two, there's no way to confidently interpret what the Bible means. So the reason these are hard passages for Christians is because they have a hard time doing the mental gymnastics around them to make them something other than the atrocious passages that they obviously are. And if you just talk to them for a while, and I I really enjoyed my conversation with Randall Rouser, uh, I hope to talk to him again about this subject at some point, but what you get out of a conversation like that is that there is no way for a normal person to interpret the Bible and really feel confident about what it means about anything. Uh, we're, we're just not that good of mental gymnasts to, to keep that up. Uh, number three, it's, it's bad literature due to unclear genres. Uh, so, uh, is the Bible a history? Well, yes and no. Is it, is it math and science? Uh, well, it tries to be sometimes. Uh, is it fiction? Uh, maybe. Allegory? Uh, possibly. Uh, you know, exactly what is the genre? Well, it's different from place to place, sometimes from verse to verse. Sometimes it changes within a verse. There's no way to keep track uh, as literature of what kind of literature you're reading in the Bible. And that's why there are fierce debates uh, even now about, you know, whether some passage that you hold near and dear it should be taken literally or whether it's figurative or what exactly what kind of passage it is. Literature, you can generally tell what kind of genre you're dealing with, and that makes it easier to interpret. With the Bible, there's no agreement on what kind of genre you're dealing with, and there's no real good way to tell. Uh, Number four, it forces people to defend that which goes against their moral instincts. So I, I gave... Uh, three issues in the blog, uh, one about the creation story. Uh, so it, it takes some people and, and makes them defend a yek position, even when they don't feel like that's true. I mentioned slavery. It makes, makes some people try to defend a certain kind of slavery as, as somehow being good, even though they actually believe that all slavery is wrong. And uh, I mentioned something else that I don't remember. What, did I, what else did I mention, Dale? Uh, Christian exclusivity. Oh, yeah, Christian exclusivity. It uh, causes uh, Christians to defend uh, more of a hard line on exclusively, exclusivity than they actually uh, feel. You know, because it says some things that are that are really emphatic, Christians have a really hard time uh, making that say what they really think, and so they end up defending things that kind of run against their moral instincts. And I think that these are... are uh, problems with the fact that the hard passages exist. Now, there are other categories of, uh, of hard passage, if you will, that I did not cover 
in the blog, and we're not going to cover uh, them here either. I just want to mention, just so you know, that the, the Bible is actually full of these types of things. It's not just a smattering here and there. It's not just the three things that I mentioned. So, for instance, if you, uh, if you look in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible where it deals with God's punishments, they're not just at all. They're the, they're the overreactions of a crazy person. God's the kind of person where you would say, well, you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. You know who you say that about? About crazy people, about drunks, about uh, people who are on drugs, people who are not rational. Um, that's, that's what you say that about. You don't actually say that about people uh, who are just. There's nothing just about God's punishments. And if we wanted to have just a show about that, uh, you'd have a hard time squaring uh, some of God's punishments with the, the supposed crime. Another category is uh, God's representatives often misinterpret him. Now, people like Randall tell me that they misinterpret him. Other people would say that they're um, interpreting God just fine. So David, uh, just an example, a, a man after God's own heart, uh, thought that it was perfectly appropriate to uh, say in the name of God, blessed be the person who takes the babies of the enemies and smashes them against the rocks. Uh, that's the kind of God David thought God was. And the Bible is full of representations of God like that through by the prophets, uh, by the people of Israel, uh, by his closest uh, spokespeople. So that's, that's problematic. Um, what, I, I'm, I'm almost done. I know that you've got a lot of things oh. to say. You're brimming. No, uh, I'm yawning. Sorry. Oh, oh you're yawning. Okay, well, that's better. I, I prefer... Uh, blatant disrespect uh, to uh, to an uh, interruption. So uh, good on you for that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm tired. I'm tired. Sorry, <laughs> you got me up an hour. Early, so we are both. Fault, so. We are both tired. Look, here's the thing. Uh, Dale is the kind of guy uh, who starts his day at around 1 p.m. Uh, it is considerably earlier than that. I had to. We had to do the podcast a little bit earlier. We got some. Things in my schedule. So sorry. Uh, back to the diatribe. Uh, some miracle claims in the Bible are just not believable. So even if you take the crazy in the Bible and you and you try to embrace all of it, there are still things that you're going to have a hard time embracing, such as the resurrection of the many uh, in Jerusalem in Matthew 27, the great zombie uprising. Even Christians don't believe that as a miracle story. And that's not the only one. The Bible's full of miracle stories like that that Christians are kind of embarrassed by. So even if you look at the Bible as a, a book of supernatural things, there are things in there that just don't jibe even for Christians. And finally, there are things that Jesus said that are not sensible. And so for those people who would say, well, you know, forget about all the, the hard passages in the Bible, just focus on Jesus. You can't just focus on Jesus. I've got a whole book coming out later this year. Hopefully, hopefully it comes out later this year. I'm done with the writing. Um, that, that talks about uh, the things that Jesus said uh, and that Jesus is not uh, particularly a bad teacher. So I could go on about this for a long time. I'll just mention as one example uh, the times when he said to people, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. This is a stupid thing to say. It was stupid in his time. It's stupid in our time. It's bad advice. It's bad advice if you allegorize it. It's bad advice if you figuratize it. It's bad on toast every way you slice it. 
and furthermore, he didn't just say it to one person. He said it to a crowd. He, he, so the Bible records him saying it twice. It seems to be the kind of thing that he said, uh, or at least the kind of thing that people thought that he said. And so it, the fact is, he said a lot of things that just don't make any sense. You've got to go through a lot of mental contortions to try to make sense. So the Bible is full of all kinds of categories of hard passages that at the end of the day, uh, make you wonder why you're defending this thing at all. So finally, um, I will cl I will close out my section by giving uh, reasons to abandon the Bible. Uh, so first of all, you don't need to mine truths from a bad source. Uh, so, you know, Christians will often say, well, look at this good passage in the Bible, or look at this good thing that Jesus said, or look at this good thing that you find in the Old Testament, as if somehow that counterbalances all the bad things. I could do the same thing, though. You know, I could take Mein Kampf from Hitler uh, or the Unabomber Manifesto and mine it for some good things. Now, for the record, I have never read either one of these documents, but I am absolutely certain that you can find some good wise things in those documents if you cherry pick them just right still no one cites these documents for the sources of their good ideas or wise ideas you do not need to mine a bad book uh, for good sayings secondly wisdom is not the domain of a single source a lot of people feel like they're stuck with the bible and all of its crazy because it's the only true source of wisdom. But wisdom is really the, the sum of all good ideas that come from hard experience. It doesn't come from a single source. It comes from everywhere. And so uh, if, if you're hanging on to the Bible because it is somehow the domain of a single source of wisdom, uh, you can let it go. Uh, third, you shouldn't trust a source for eternal truth that's wrong about temporal truths. This one, I, I just don't understand um, Christians like Dale who believe that the Bible might have errors. If it's wrong about the little things, I don't see why you would trust it about the big things. And if it's wrong about the temporal things, there's no reason to trust it about the eternal things. You've got to have some other reason to trust it because it's trustworthy. Because it's not trustworthy if in, if, in fact, it gets the little things wrong. If it gets the things wrong that you can prove, you shouldn't trust it for things that you can't prove. Uh, finally, uh, you should never be in a position to have to defend what seems wrong to you. And this is, this is where I'll close my thoughts. And uh, this is the point that if you only take one thing away, <coughs> I want to highlight this one. If when reading the thing, there are parts of it that make you feel uncomfortable and icky and wrong, and it, ju it just seems wrong to you, it is probably not because your moral instincts are falsely calibrated. At the end of the day, even if your moral instincts are falsely calibrated, that's all you have. And if you are reading a book that gives you advice that goes against your best lights, you should abandon it. You should not try to save it or mine it for whatever nuggets of good things it has. You should abandon it. That is my case, and uh, I turn it over to Dale. Okay. Um, so thanks for that um, that case there, David. And yeah, as David said, um, 
he's kind of the opposite of me. When when I do my podcast, I try to keep it in sync with what's in the blog. Um, whereas David likes to sort of expand and, and bring up other topics like, you know, the ridiculousness of miracles and that sort of thing. So yeah, just, just, um, I'm going to try to narrow it down, um, to the topics of the blog, but in a way that is more applicable or more expanded to the general point that David's making about this. So, um, so yeah, so David first says that there are no hard passages, um, you know, the, these passages are actually um, easy to understand, but um, they're hard in the sense that it's hard for us as Christians to accept, so we have to come up with some convoluted explanation. So this this ties into his, his first issue is uh, something that we've already covered in large part, um, is the creation account. And you know, the various contradictions with a young earth creationist perspective and that sort of thing. And um, I just wanted to give a sense because I, I think that there are hard things to understand. It, it's even at an interpretational level, there there are um, hard aspects to it. So I wanted to show that there are multiple factors too, which can also complicate um you know, as a skeptic being able to prove that the creation account is an error or something like that. So in the first place, um, there there are multiple factors, and the first would be obvious, right? Let, let's just assume David's interpretation is correct, that the young earth creationist position is what the Bible says. Okay, well, the first factor you have to prove, and, and David probably is going to say, yeah, he can meet this, but and I think he can, but does the scientific evidence, the secular evidence, actually prove that the Earth is old? Um, you know, that has to be assessed on a balance of probabilities. And if you're not 100% convinced of that, this would be a multiplying factor um, that could diminish, help to diminish. So for, first of all, I'll just ask you, David, if you don't mind, just as a yes or no, um, what probability would you say you're at um, on the fact that the science itself proves the Earth is old as opposed to a young Earth? Are, are you? Would you say you're 100? 200%. 200%. So no doubt whatsoever. Okay. Um, so yeah, if if you if you weren't um, 100%, then this could be a factor that would lower your overall probability in proving this error. For for me myself. I would say I'm probably at most about 90%, and based on what I've seen, and I haven't done a full, you know, full a full study of that, but you know, I, I've done quite a lot as a layman back in my day. So yeah, right there, 90%. Then times another factor, and that's the interpretational one. Can you actually prove that the Bible itself teaches the Earth is young? And you know, there's. There is controversy there based on the Hebrew itself. And if you're interested in truth, even as a layman, I know that you have this notion that the Bible should be just immediately obvious to the average reader. And I think there is some truth on that. However, I would say that it's your responsibility as a layman. We have access to the Internet. You can look up what these people have to say, what scholars have to say on the interpretation. And you need... It is your responsibility to interact with that, even if you end up disagreeing with it and think that the Bible does teach a young earth, you still have to interact with that. And I, I would say I, I'm definitely not, I'm far from 100% convinced that 
the Bible actually teaches a young earth. I, I do think that's more probable though, to what it's teaching, um, but I'm far from conclusive. So I'm wondering, again, on, on the interpretational issue, David, uh, would you say you're 100% convinced that the, the Bible teaches a young 100%. earth? 100%. 100%. Interesting. Okay. Um, and also, so yeah, this is going into my... Um, my my notion that okay let's pretend there are bible errors you know this is what i argued in the failure of the fall let's pretend you know how the snake lost its legs and blah 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 um let's pretend that is actually an error what's the significance you have to argue i know you have your necessarily attached argument that even these seemingly trivial or incidental details are are necessarily attached to the truth of the story how convinced are you of that? Um, is there any wiggle room on that? Or again, are you just, you're 100% convinced if the story of how the snake lost its legs is false, the whole story is, is garbage? 100%. Uh, okay. I, would, I would say, see my last uh, point, actually not the last point, but one of those, um, the, my next to the last point. If, if you're wrong about the little things that you can prove, then you shouldn't be trusted about the big things that you can't prove. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, and I'm I'm not basically as the skeptic. The point is, this is a an overall approach of how you would tackle this and the complexity that could arise. Because David, and I'm not challenging him here, but he would need to actually prove with absolute proof then, since he's a hundred percent, that each of these three elements are actually true. Um, I don't. I don't think he could do that, but, you know, we'll see. I'm not going to get into it, but it, it, this provides you with an approach where you can see that it could potentially get complex. I've just mentioned three factors that, you know, the interpretational issue has multiple factors even within that. You know, the question of genre that, that David brings up and uh, the question of the interpretation of the Hebrew words and that sort of thing. So it's possible if a, if a skeptic's not 100% like what David's saying, and, and, you know, I would need to tackle that and maybe bring him down a bit if we're actually going to get into that. But, but let's say he was only 90% convinced of each of those three elements. Well, 90 times 90 times 90, whatever that equals, he would only be like 70% or something like that. So right, right there, it's possible through the analysis of these multiple components that need to be established for the skeptic's case to be proven, maybe you could whittle them down to the point where it's a very weak or even a non-probable, uh, like not more probable than not. Okay, so can, I, can I just cut in just a little bit there? I don't understand your math, but that's okay. You don't have to explain it to me. The math that I do understand from you is that you just got baptized on a 53 probability uh, that Christianity is correct. So even if you whittled me down to 60%, mm -hmm. That would still be a stronger reason to go with uh, abandoning the Bible than your reasons for being a Christian. No, because the 53 takes into account, like the 60% would be the negative evidence. If you had counterbalancing positive evidences that were stronger, all you would need to do is overturn 60. If you had 61% 
on the positive side, you would be overall more probable than not. That would be what, 51% or 50.0 something percent. Like I said, I don't understand the math. So you don't have to try to uh, defend it. I will just drop that little math bomb out there for the readers and listeners to figure out for themselves. But uh, go ahead. Sure. The, 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 point, the point isn't about the, the overall thing. Yeah, it's just this interpretation thing that, you know, break up these alleged errors into the individual components and see what the skeptic can actually prove to be true. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll move on. Okay, so this slave slavery is the second aspect, and this relates to David's general point about um, where is it? His last thing where he's saying, yeah, a Christian shouldn't be in a position to defend stuff that he thinks are immoral. Um, and here, I would disagree with that. I, I think that. With the example of slavery, this was something that, you know, as a teenager growing up, this was one of the things that I just, uh, this is automatically immoral. I've been taught in my culture, slavery is always wrong. There's never a justification for it at all. Um, and so I, quite frankly, I, you know, like William Lane Craig as a teenager, I just sort of swept it under the rug and kind of delayed analysis of it. But once I actually decided to look into it, slavery is no longer an issue for me. And rather than getting into the Old Testament stuff, because I, I actually think the case is even stronger in the New Testament, because Paul, he doesn't endorse slavery, but he does allow or permit slavery and says that you, you know, he gives verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, this is what we we're studying in, in our sermon, coincidentally, on uh, last Sunday uh, in church. And yeah, so basically Paul says, you know, hang on a second, you know, Christians in, in Corinth were asking, hey, we're, we're now Christians, we have all these liberties, should we run away and not be slaves? Should we, you know, seek our freedom at all costs? Should we, um, you know, some masters were asking, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a slave to Christ, I need to serve others, should, should I go into slavery? Um, or, you know, also issues about spouses and stuff like that. Paul Paul's answer wasn't like, yes, by all means, let's have a slave revolt and everyone should automatically get their freedom. Paul says, no, stay, just hang on one second, stay as you are, you know, no immediate life changes. If, if you came to Christ as a slave, stay as you were. If you're a freedman, stay as you were. Um, that's not a permanent thing, but that's, he's just saying temporarily. There, there don't have to be any immediate life-altering changes just be, to your status, just because you become a Christian. And I think that Paul's the reason for this makes it moral because Paul is concerned about society and you know the society the ancient Roman society was extremely terrified of Christians because they saw them as being antisocial and turning the world upside down and this sort of thing that's why they were persecuted in you know as uh, on a local level and then later at the level of the empire as a whole um, so Paul's saying let, let's not you know, for the sake of the gospel, you should be willing to give up your rights. You know, if you can get your freedom legally in a normal in a normal way that won't upset the pagans and that sort of thing, by all means do it. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of saving people's souls and not having people just automatically turned off as, you know, looking at Christians as a bunch of rebels, give up or sacrifice, you know, be a slave of Christ and, and sacrifice your rights, your freedoms as a Christian for the sake of that gospel. And I think that is, that's a moral thing. When I understood this point, 
I have no problem with slavery, even institutionalized uh, slavery. Uh, um, okay, yeah, people are going to misunderstand that. Uh, <laughs> you know, sla- I was sla- just sla- thinking, sla- <laughs> you're going to get a lot of mail. Yeah, <laughs> people uh, send your mail to <laughs> skeptics and seekers at yeah, gmail.com. <laughs> Slavery is is not morally ideal. The principle, the moral principle of autonomy is the ideal is good. Everyone should be free if you can get it. But sometimes there are justifications for why you should endure endure less than morally ideal situations. I guess that's that's what I'm trying to say. Slavery in itself is not good. It should everyone should be free. Um, hopefully that'll stave off some criticism because yeah, I realize no, that was sounding for a second. But, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, you know, th- think of it. Think of it this way: like if if your girlfriend, if you like yellow nail polish or something, and you know she hates it, but she's like, well, for your for your purposes, you know what? I'm going to paint my nails yellow. Or same with men, vice versa. If you want to grow a beard, uh, grow your beard. But that's your that's your right. Your wife should, you know, for better or worse, they they should love you no matter what, right? But given that you know that she prefers you shape clean shaven, okay, well, you know, you'll sacrifice your right and shave it for her benefit. And that that's what I think Paul's doing here. You have the right to be free. You've got your newfound liberty as Christians, but sacri- sacrifice that for the higher the higher good, you know, for the sake of saving people's souls. So I think that's that's what's going on there. Um, I'm sorry, from, did you really just compare slavery to a preferred color of toenail varnish? I did, Are yeah. you kidding me? The, no, uh, no, okay, not. Okay, go, go ahead with your point. <laughs> I uh, We will swing back around, I hope, but uh, same, go ahead. Same underlying morally relevant no, 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 consideration, That's, that's right? okay. Go ahead and finish your case. I, uh, I'll be right here. <laughs> okay. Um, what else? Okay, miracles. So this wasn't relevant, but, yeah, miracle claims are just not believable, Um and you bring up Matthew 27, and you you know that I don't interpret this literally. I, I think it is, I think Michael Cohn is correct, that it's uh, the apocalyptic literature or genre. Um, but you seem to have this mistaken notion that I reject it because, oh, you know, Jesus rising from the dead, that's, that's plausible. But a bunch of zombies in Jerusalem, that's just ridiculous. That That's not what I'm doing there. I, there's nothing ridiculous about... Um, multiple people rising out of their dead rising from the dead or their graves um you know a supernatural event is the same as any other supernatural event it's 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 not that i see that as somehow more ridiculous than jesus rising from the dead or jesus turning water into to wine it's just an interpretational issue i i think the genre of this text there are indications or indicators that make it pro- uh, seem like it's probably the apocalyptic genre. That's why I don't interpret it literally, but I don't see anything. Can I, can I just uh, dive in and ask you a couple of clarifying questions about that thing in uh, particular? No. Okay. Um, because it, are you going to ask me what are the indications? Are we going to get into specifics about what are the indications? Well, uh, okay, so look, I, the kind of questions that I wanted to ask were help me clarify what you were saying is... Um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little confused. So, for instance, the same passage that gives us the zombies also gives us the uh, darkening of the sky. Was that real or not? It gives us an earthquake. Was that real or not? It gives us the tearing of the temple curtain. Was that real or not? And so most Christians that I talk to say all of those things are real. But when it gets to the zombies, suddenly that's not real. And so uh, if you were saying that all of those things that I just mentioned are also figuratively uh, figurative, then at least y you will be yeah. consistent. So that's, that's what I was yeah. going to ask. Do you take okay. the other things in the passage as figurative or do you take some of those as literal? Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, uh, not, I do take the rest of that. It, it's the same as all of Joel, you know, Joel has a bunch of stuff that's quoted in Acts chapter two. So yeah, I, I think they're all apocalyptic, a part of that apocalyptic genre. Um, yeah, that's what I personally think. Uh, so I'm I'm consistent there. Um, okay, that's all I was. Reason, that's all I was asking, asking. Gotcha. Okay, so the, the reason I was I wanted to avoid getting into a long discussion there is because your final thing, Christian exclusivism, and I didn't want to lose track of that. Um, okay, so you. It's true. Um, you know, it, it's clear in the Bible that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can be, you can't be saved through religious pluralism. Uh, the only way someone can be saved is through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Um, so, yeah, you know, universalism or religious pluralism, like you can't be saved by following the Buddha or through the military campaigns of Muhammad or anything like that. Um, However, that doesn't necessarily teach exclusivism. And I provided a source, a great source uh, by Mark Rogues uh, on the various options in this regard. I take what's called a Christian inclusivist perspective. So um, that just means that you, you don't need ex necessarily need explicit uh, belief in, you know, Jesus, you know, those um, minimal Christianity proper doctrines like uh, you can be saved without knowing Jesus died and rose from the dead or that Jesus was God um, and this this is called an inclusivist perspective and it would include people that have never heard about Jesus in the first place um, that does need to be qualified you do have to believe in the existence of God right that's that's in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 which says for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen um, through what has been made. Uh, so people are without excuse. And I know David knows about this passage, and this is this riles up atheists because now they're not included even in this expanded inclusivist perspective. But um, yeah, like I said, I, I go with the Bible. I think that's that's true. I think that if if the Bible says God has revealed to you guys or consistent with my honest seeker criteria and yet you don't you maintain your atheism and don't believe then yeah you, you don't qualify to be saved then so uh what did i so just in closing um yeah so you know are there are there these honest seekers to which david claims to be um of course, you know, I, I used to be one of them. I didn't have, claim an explicit knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, the dying for my sins and that sort of thing. Um, but I'll just say this, no honest, truly honest seekers will fall short of salvation or reach that point of no, no return, so to speak, um, 
when they meet those uh, criteria that you know God will reveal himself and reveal the truth to you um, by that by that point that's my belief as I, as I said in another podcast so that that's it I'll turn it over to David to uh, give his take on what he said okay let's go back to slavery um, okay. I, I, I didn't want to go back to slavery I, I thought that we would be able to uh, gloss over that and quickly agree that slavery is bad every time for every people everywhere every when um, and that is clearly not the case for you Depends what you mean by bad. I would say it's not morally ideal. It's violating. I don't. I don't care what you. What okay. other word you say? It's okay. atrocious. And if you don't say it's atrocious, you are morally questionable. Okay. If, if that that is that is the bottom line. You you are you are saying things that defend it. If you think it is not atrocious, now, I don't believe for a moment that you would become a slaver. I don't know what it would take to get you to become a slaver. But but you leave the door open when you talk this way that you could. That, that, that there could be some religious God-centric reason where you could do it. Let's let's let me ask this then. Do you think the salvation of a soul is worth giving up, you know, temp- temporary earthly liberty or, or your autonomy absolutely not first first of all this okay. idea of a salvation of a soul and what it costs to save a soul this is all artificial god can save any soul he wants to if he's god uh and it can cost whatever price he uh gives it if he's god so the idea that you have to go through some atrocious thing for salvation of a soul is itself an atrocious idea uh and and it's the sort of thing that you would defend if you are morally compromised. So that is that is simply not uh, an argument. You cannot say, oh, no, I enslaved these people because by enslaving them, uh, you see, they got to know God. And uh, so the kingdom the kingdom is benefited. Uh, utterly absurd. But but let me let me go with the other point that you were making, which I think was a more central point uh, about what you were saying, which is that. Uh, it was okay to tell people, no, 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 just stay slaves uh, because there's there's a greater good. Now, let me just say, any time the advice is just stay slaves, it's bad, evil advice, and to hell with you. Just stay slaves is always bad. And if your religion requires you to just stay slaves, you should get out. Does that does that even occur temporarily? Because Paul says, you know, by all means, whatever, by whatever means, short of like, you know, an, an immediate. I'm sorry, Dale. Revolution. You're still missing a big. You're still missing a big piece here. This wasn't just just stay slaves. It was also to the Christians who owned slaves. Paul at no point told them, "Oh yeah, you free your slaves." So th- this was justifying okay. slavery to the slaver not just the enslaved. Okay, so I'll come back on that, because Paul, Paul did endorse freeing the slaves um, to, these, to these masters. He does say it's better, um, for example, in Philemon. However, 
Paul recognizes the reality. Doing Paul so sent be... Philemon back to the slaver. Know, listen, I'm not done, but there oh, will be... Oh, you're done, <laughs> but go ahead. Okay, okay. Well, if I'm done, fine. No, you, I think argument-wise, argument you're, you're, you're quite done. There, there is zero compromise in, in this thing where, as a Christian, giving advice to a new church that is setting an example of morality to the world, that it's okay for you to keep your slaves, and you tell your slaves it's, it's okay, you need to stay slaves. That's brainwashing. That's what was told to the slaves in the South, that you, as a Christian, should, you should stay slaves and be good, loyal slaves to your masters as if to Christ. That was the pitch. Yeah, because it was evil. Social. It was evil then. It was evil when Paul said it. It was evil when uh, the, the um, Deuteronomy uh, writer said it. It was so you, always evil. Okay, so you you think Paul should have just said violent revolution, slaves? Let's let's go killing and slaughtering people to gain our freedom. That's the moral option you think was right. Hey, that's the moral option we took uh, in the Civil War, and thank God someone stood up and did it. Oh, I agree. I agree with you on that front. Why? That's Why would you agree with me on that front? Because there's a difference. This this was for the sake of the gospel. Saving people's souls is more important. It's than all for the sake of the gospels. Free, what, freedom. What in the Civil War. Okay, in the Civil <laughs> sure. War, we didn't have some. What What was the context during the Civil War that people? would have been prevented from being saved Christians because of a slave revolt or something like that. There, there was no context in the same way the ancient Romans. Well, for one, they thought that owning people was a good idea. They thought that owning people was a will, the will of God. Now, if you're telling me that there's nothing wrong with that, I will repeat what I said. You're a moral monster. Of course there's something wrong with that. There was something wrong with it from the beginning of time. It was never right. And so, of course, if your God is a God that was against slavery, someone should have picked up a gun and shot a slaver. And I'm glad that we finally did it. Now, considering all of the wars that your God caused over, over land, he couldn't have dedicated one of those wars to freeing slaves? I'm just considering your point about the Civil War. Um, so say that again about the Civil War. You're saying you're you're trying to say that because people in the context thought the Bible taught slavery. Um, yeah, that in fact, this is this, this is leading people away. This is leading people away from the truth of God's I love. So. I don't I don't think that actually happened, though. They weren't actually. Oh, these slaves are revolting against us. Therefore, Christianity is not true. They, that no, 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 no. By owning, by Christians owning slaves, that's actually leading people away from God's love, from God's true nature. Now, if you say that that okay. is not opposed to God's true nature, then you're a moral monster. If you're saying it is opposed to God's true nature, then the war is justified to expand the kingdom because the true kingdom is a kingdom of freedom, not of slavery. Okay, and, and I agree with that. So, you, so you're saying therefore the Paul should have led that revolt. In fact, Paul shouldn't have had to. God should have led that revolt in negative seventeen hundred. Okay, so let me just. You're trying to say that the slaves themselves would be prevented. They'd be oh these. 
Christian masters are so mean. Well, the heck with Christianity. Not just the, not just the slaves, but everyone in that society who thinks that owning people is okay, that that they are honoring God by owning people. That that's actually bad. That would be that would be. Let me let me just try to speak. An example in uh, in your Christian language, it would be a little bit like say uh, like churches uh, saying it is okay for gay people to get married here and be priests here. You know, I you know for those who think that homosexuality is a bad thing, uh, they would think a church that did that would not be honoring God at all. Um, they they would be doing the opposite, and I would say that Christians who are holding slaves. Are not honoring God, if if God is not a God of slavery. So so changing that system would be a priority. You're not saving souls by making more slaves, and by allowing slavers to continue in the sin of slavery. Right. So in in the civil war society, I don't believe you. I don't buy you. It's not the case that people were prevented from becoming Christians. They weren't. But, but they, I'm saying is, they're not the being primary. they're not becoming Christians if they're joining a church that supports slavery. But they they did. But that's though, not. But that's not Christianity. Well, they you were see, doing something wrong. They like just because Christians can be saved even if they have wrong opinions on. Well, I heard, I've heard you saying that I've heard you saying that a person can't really is not really a Christian if they're in an adulterous relationship they re, that they refuse to get out of. Now, if that's true, okay. I don't I don't understand how you're saying that slavers can become Christians if if they're in a uh, an even worse type of relationship that they refuse to get out of. Okay. Okay. So because yeah. slavery is okay, so worse I than adultery. So I can retract that then. So yeah, they they should have been no better then. Maybe these these they had the Bible which gave indications that slavery is not the ideal. You want to free people whenever you can. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like your language. Not the ideal. No, it's wrong. Say slavery is wrong. Don't say it's not the ideal. You know what's not the ideal? Wearing green with purple. That's not the ideal. <laughs> okay. Okay. Don't okay. do it. <laughs> let me say this. So slavery is is wrong or immoral in the sense that it violates a moral principle. That that much we can agree on. However, there can be ex- external circumstances which justify or necessitate allowing such a practice. And that those circumstances applied back in the Roman Empire when Paul wrote wrote that letter okay. that's I'm why gonna, he I'm doesn't quit say yelling. Let, let's start a spartacus i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna stop yelling but i am going to uh i am going to say that um i'm a moral monster i'm actually not going to say you're a moral monster either um that's a part of the yelling i'm gonna stop yelling now um and i am going to say very calmly and rationally that you are simply making my point and we can we can talk about this for the next three hours. The fact of the matter is, uh, overarching point which which I, I think that we have reached an impasse that the audience can wrestle with. Exactly. It's wrong okay. every time. It's evil, not just not just wrong, not just a bad idea. And they have heard you say many times words that are almost conciliatory, uh, 
about this practice that is evil, and they have heard you say uh, things like, yes, but it's it's an evil that's worth it if it means saving a soul. Anything is worth it to save a soul. Um, And that is, that is, that is, I understand you stand by that. And I, and I call that an evil, uh, one of the great evils of religion, because it, it really does require religion to make a good person do an evil thing and feel good about it or support an evil thing and feel good about it. Because they're doing this very physical, very uh, temporal thing that is evil for the cause of something that is non-physical and non-temporal. So you'll, you'll physically enslave a person for the non-physical reward of salvation. Now, we can't prove the salvation part. We can prove the slavery part. And, and you are willing to justify slavery in any other atrocity for the idea that but some could be saved. Well, that is not that, an idea. That it's is, proven. Let's well, operate on the assumption it's proven. Well, okay. Right? Well, because it's, then that, sh- that's sure. The, that's, um, it's proven for you. But I think even Christians would, uh, well, many Christians, not all, even many Christians would cringe at the idea that any atrocity is justified if souls are saved. And I would simply say, if that's the price of saving souls, your religion is atrocious. The God who saves those souls under those conditions are atrocious, and you shouldn't want to be saved. Okay, so I'll say this then for the sake of the listeners. As I said, I think you're right in the sense that I would never come to this decision outside of an inspired apostle providing me with divine revelation um, that qualifies this. I, I probably just would have never given it a second thought and just assumed, yep, it's always it's always bad, it's always wrong, because I have a moral conscience, which testifies to this moral principle of autonomy, right? It's not, it's not the moral ideal. I know you don't like that terminology, but that's how I Only because it. it's, it's weasel words. It's, it's, it's disingenuous, it's, weaselly words. Well, it's not to me, though. So you're, you can't, you know, impose your, you don't like the words I use. These are clarifying well, I'm words doing you a favor by calling you disingenuous. <laughs> I know that doesn't seem like that. But I, I, I'm actually doing you a favor oh. of assuming that you don't believe that slavery is a good idea. That, in fact, you think it's atrocious. I want to leave the listener with the idea that you think that slavery is atrocious. You just keep saying, nah, it's a bad idea. And so I'm overriding you by saying, no, it's atrocious and you're lying about it. That's, that's a better stance for you than what you're actually saying. Right. Because I, I know this is, this is an, an emotional topic for people that people like you know Tara, that people are going to be mis... I'm afraid people will misunderstand what I'm saying. So I think they're understanding you just perfectly. Here's, here's, I think you're making yourself very clear. Yeah, so it's it's. I know I I'm going to use it again. It's not morally ideal, and or fine. I can bow to your thing. It's it's immoral because it violates a moral principle. It is not something we should want, but it can be allowed in certain circumstances, such as the circumstances of the Roman Empire at that time. And I find it, and I want to give my point because you. 
I understand you and Tara think I'm morally atrocious in my view. I think you guys are morally atrocious. How dare you say that a, the salvation of a soul, someone's eternal life, is not worth temporarily sacrificing your liberty here on Earth. That's atrocious. I mean, in Tara's mind, people, even if someone's being tortured, I, I asked specifically, let's pretend your torture chamber model of hell is true. Would you do that to save baby Hitler's life or allow slavery in this con or, you know, allow people to be slaves, to be have their liberty, earthly liberties temporarily restricted? Um, and you, you say, yeah, the heck with hell. Uh, you should be free here on Earth. That's morally atrocious to me. I mean, there's no comparison. Eternal life considerations compared to, um, you know, temporal effects or temporal negative temporal considerations. I I can just turn around and say I find you guys as morally atrocious as you guys think I am on that front. And I think that's a that's a point that I want people like Tara, if you're listening, to hear this because it can be flipped on you and I. I have emotions on this. I mean, eternal salvation is just, I'm sorry, it's way more important than any temporal consideration. So that that's the point I wanted to leave you guys with. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, finally, you, um, you stood up and said a thing that was true to your heart. Uh, so congratulations there. Um, too too bad it's it's awful, <laughs> but 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 congratulations on um, speaking a tr speaking your truth unhampered. Let me let me just say my final thought on this. Okay. You think eternal life is is worth any consideration? Once again, I think that I think that there are a lot of even Christians that would disagree with you on that. But even temporally we know that there are things worth dying for. Most people, I think, would agree that there are things worth dying for, that, that living, that, that taking another breath at any cost is, is not a mature idea. Uh, there are some things more important than your next breath. Mm -hmm. And I would say that there are some things more important than your eternal life too. There, there's some things worth dying for, and there's some things worth eternally dying for. And if the if if your highest priority is to draw another breath and to keep drawing it for all eternity, then yes, I think that that would lead you to some monstrous conclusions. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I'll I'll let you have the the last word on that. Um, yeah. Is there was there anything else um, that you wanted to tackle, or well, I or think stick on slavery? So, well, no, I mean, look, slavery is a, a, a thing that we talked about, but I, I think that in discussing it, we have made solidly every uh, every higher viewpoint that I that I set out to make. <laughs> so, um, I don't, great, yeah. I don't, I don't well, think that I really need to to go back on the other issues because I'm looking at my bullet points and I, I think that w what I have, what I have accused the Bible of doing, uh, I've, I've, I've been justified. Okay. Uh, I've, I've been vindicated in what I've said. So, uh, that said, I, I don't, 
uh, have any more. I think that uh, I'm willing to let it stand right there. How about you? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll just summarize because I, I, I think that you're right. This, the conversation on slavery does encapsulate a lot of your hermeneutical, your main points about, you know, how Christians and skeptics disagree on a particular passage or a hard passage in the Bible. And uh, I would just leave the audience, our, our moral consciences are not infallible. They can be wrong. Obviously, either me or David is wrong on, on this topic, or both of us, possibly. But, um, yeah, so there. sometimes through proper interpretation, getting a proper understanding, looking to the, schol to the scholarship and getting a, a better idea of the context, these can be used to inform our moral decisions or, you know, any other decisions on, on creation as well. And there can be multiple components or elements that are involved in assessing um, whether there is really an error, whether it's moral or whether it's factual in the case of the creation stuff. And you need to be mindful of this. It's, it's not just a matter of, oh, well, I, I went on a website that says 101 Bible contradictions. I looked it up in the Bible. It looks like a contradiction to me. And I'm, I'm not saying David does this, but I'm just saying as a point, it's, that's not the easy or, or that yeah that's not what god intends the bible to be when he says it's it's understandable by lay people that's that's not what he means he doesn't want us to be intellectually lazy you need to engage to the best of your use all of your resources to make an informed decision and i think david's done that from everything i know about him i've done that too i've done my my homework to the best of my my ability and came out with a different opinion. You guys are responsible to do that too. And you know, you, you might disagree with what David says. You might probably as skeptics, you're going to disagree with what I'm saying as has been the case, but that's fine. Get out there and do the work yourself and understand it does get complicated. That that's what I want to leave guys with. Right. So, uh, as it's practiced, I had the first word, I'll leave Dale with the last word. Dale, tell him what you're going to talk about next week. Um, oh, okay, so this I'm excited about actually on getting David's feedback and stuff. It's kind of, uh, again, it's one of my own uh, unique ideas or, you know, some people are, you know, probably going to just say, oh, he's young and naive. But yeah, I've, I've come up with an idea for what I call the vindication argument. And this is, um, it's based on uh, Mike Lacona, who, who gave a historical argument um, trying to say that Jesus predicted his resurrection. Um, my vindication argument is actually uh, more wide, more expanded, more broad than that. Um, it can apply to the Shroud, properly based beliefs, and any evidence for Christianity. Um, but I'm going to focus it in on the resurrection specifically for our combo, just because that, that narrows it and makes it easier to understand. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically saying that we can get double warrant. Let's pretend the resurrection is proven true, and we can prove that Jesus predicted his resurrection. So it's saying Christianity can be proven true, not just on the basis of the resurrection, but the, the truth of the resurrection, plus the fact that the prediction itself would be a G-belief authenticating event. Um, so that's what I'm going to be trying to argue next week. And, um, you know, the question is, is that a case of double warrant? Can I use both? Or am I double dipping like George Costanza? Um, so, yeah, that's what we'll be doing next week. In other words... Excuse me. Prophecy. Talk to you next week. <laughs>
Okay. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. Take Bye. care, everyone. Bye-bye.